Our second reading for today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Here ends our second reading. And now, please pray with me. O God, take our hands and work through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our lips and speak through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire for your love's sake. Amen. Well, here we are in a new year. It's hard to believe that it's already 2020. (laughs) Where did time go? 2020. Wow. New Year's is an interesting holiday. Like many of you, I planned a small celebration with friends this past Tuesday night at my house. People were chatting and having fun, and also a glass or two of champagne. And yet, at one point during the evening, I went to my small roof deck and had time to myself, time to think. I felt this inner compulsion to get away from the crowd. New Year's is one of those times that seems to force on us reflection. Reflection on the past year, things that went well and those things that didn't. Also, we think about the year ahead. Oh, the thoughts that went through my head as I looked out on the Houston skyline and considered life. Minute by minute went by. I felt I could spend the rest of the evening up there, and probably would have, if I didn't have to play host. Did something similar happen to you? What is it that you want to do this year? What do you want to accomplish? 
new year, new you. I mean, after all, I'm up here preaching in the pulpit rather than down, down on the floor. So what will this new year bring for you? What's in store? What will you do differently? The new year is a time for epiphany. So it's altogether appropriate that we celebrate Epiphany Sunday here in church this morning. The Texas Sunday is a classic one, one I'm sure you know well. It's the text of the three kings. As the song we just sang says, we three kings of Orient are. But the familiarity with the text gets in the way of us seeing something new, seeing something that God might want us to consider. What epiphany is here in this text for you? For me, for the new year. If we want to see something new, we have to look at the text with new eyes. And when we do look a little closer at the text, we find some surprising things, many epiphanies. First off, there aren't three kings in the text. Nowhere in this passage does it say that there were three of them. The number three comes from the three gifts that were offered, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Christian tradition took the three gifts and turned it into three kings. And also, by the way, added names to them later. (laughs) Also, the text never mentions that these visitors from the east were kings. They are magi in Greek. A magus was an astrologer, a diviner of stars. They were the people that the pagans of Babylon might have approached to discern their future, their own personal horoscope. Absent from this text also is any mention of the manger. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus wasn't born in a manger. That part comes from the Gospel of Luke. Here, in Matthew, Jesus is born in a house, presumably the house where Mary and Joseph lived. So this text is full of some surprises, many epiphanies. But the biggest surprise for me is not the lack of the number of astrologers, or that they were astrologers, not kings, or the absence of a manger. What intrigues me most is verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened. Herod was, the Greek, word for the, the Greek word means more than just frightened. Herod was deeply disturbed. He was shaking in his boots. He was shook, as millennials might say. Herod met these astrologers, these soothsayers, who came to pay homage to the Messiah, and it scared him right down to his bones. Now, why on earth would King, now why on earth... Would King Herod be scared? This is King Herod we're talking about. Herod the Great. He wasn't called the Great for nothing. This wasn't some WWF wrestler giving himself a name for for promotional purposes. Herod had earned that title, mostly through brutality. Herod had conspired and connived to get the throne of Judea. He had viciously cut down all his enemies. At one point, Herod even killed his own son, his own son to maintain power on the throne. He ruled through brute force and through knowing how to reward his allies, and he had his minions who would carry out the most shocking crimes in his name without a second thought. Here is the Stalin, the Pol Pot, the King Jong-un of his era. He rules through fear. He's not the one to be afraid. Fear is the one essential ingredient to any tyrant holding power. That is the one way you can tell a tyrant. Tyrant depends on their enemies being afraid afraid of losing their lives, afraid of losing their positions of power, afraid of losing something they hold dear. That is why tyrants are known for punishing people. 
When Hitler first became Chancellor of Germany in early 1933, he used the Reichstag fire to gain extraordinary powers. With those new powers, he rounded up his political enemies. Hitler didn't just arrest his enemies. He brutally tortured them and then released them, most of whom were so badly tortured they died shortly thereafter. This had the dual effect of eliminating his chief rivals and instilling true fear in the hearts of anyone who would oppose him. Later that year, when he held, when he held popular votes to give him the cover of legitimacy, his brown shirts, Hitler's personal army of thugs, would grab anyone who publicly disagreed with Hitler, beat him up, and then put him on public display. It was about fear. Tyrants know how to use fear. But yet, here in our text, it is Herod who is afraid. Afraid of a newborn baby. Why? Because tyrants know that the one thing that can bring them down is not a person. People can be killed. They can be intimidated. The one thing that all true tyrants fear is the power of an idea. In early 1917, as the Russian Empire was collapsing over the pressures of World War I and the deep-seated internal difficulties they had, the Germans shipped a special package behind enemy lines into Russia. What they shipped to Russia on that sealed train was Vladimir Lenin. They knew that of all things the Germans could do to bring down the Russians, the most effective was to export an idea, in this case, communism. Lenin had fled Russia several years earlier, but had tried to carry on his mission of promoting a communist revolution from afar. Now, just as the Russian Empire was teetering, the Germans sent Lenin and his ideas into the heart of the country. That one fateful move changed the course of world history. It wasn't because of the person of Lenin. There were plenty of talented people who wanted to take down the Tsar. It was Lenin's ideas that mattered. Ideas can fire an imagination and take on far more power than any one person could. One of the sad stories unfolding in the world today is is the degradation of Venezuela. Here you have Nicolas Maduro overseeing a horrific breakdown in society. The economy has collapsed. There is lack of food and particularly a lack of basic medical supplies. Periodic blackouts deprive people of electricity. All of this in Venezuela, which is the largest deposits of oil of any nation on earth. Plenty of people in Venezuela are frustrated with Maduro's government. And yet, nothing has happened to bring it down. Why? Every situation is complicated, but I imagine one important element is that there is no idea that galvanizes the opposition. Sure, people don't like Maduro. He is a tyrant. But that's not enough for people to risk their lives to change things. What they need is an idea, because ideas are what make revolutionary change. What Herod the Great feared was the idea of the Messiah, God's anointed one. There was this belief in ancient Israel that God's anointed, a new King David, would deliver the people from oppression, that God herself would be present in this Messiah, just as she had been present with David. Herod knew these stories, and more importantly, he knew the power of these stories. And with God as a motivating force against him, there was no telling what would happen to Herod and his kingdom. A Messiah, one whose coming even pagan astrologers from the east could see, could galvanize people in a way that no one else could. God's Messiah would take away the fear of reprisals, the very fear that Herod relied upon to keep people under his thumb. The Messiah would be the liberator, As such, Herod had to do what he could, anything he could, to stamp out that idea. That idea shook him, and for good reason. 
You want to be a revolutionary person? You want to challenge the tyrants in your midst? Those who oppress? Find an idea like the Messiah that motivates. The problem with ideas, however, especially powerful ones, is that they can be co-opted and twisted to other ends. We see this all the time with the idea of freedom here in the United States. People talk about freedom in America all the time. But what does it really mean? Does freedom mean that a five-year-old should be able to buy an Uzi? Does freedom mean low taxes and few regulations? Many would say so. These people often parrot the phrase from Thomas Jefferson that the government which governs least governs best. They use that phrase and others like it to justify all sorts of public policy. But what does that freedom actually look like? Let's say you don't have health insurance. How much freedom do you actually have? A lack of options for health insurance, particularly if you have a pre-existing condition, keeps people trapped in their jobs all the time. If you're sick and you can't get affordable care, how free are you? If one surgery, one surgery mires you in medical debt and you have to declare personal bankruptcy, how free are you? Let's say you live in Houston and various petrochemical plants catch fire and pollute the environment because of a lack of enforcement and you develop cancer or other health issues as a result. Is that freedom? Freedom for what? At its essence, freedom is the ability to choose, to act as you see fit, to exercise your own free will. But political philosophers since the 17th century have all argued that certain freedoms need to be restricted to live in society. John Stuart Mill, in his landmark work on liberty, defined a liberal, that is a free society, as one that allows you to do what you want, provided your freedom does not limit the freedom of another. For instance, you're not free to kill another person. That freedom is restricted. More Americans, especially American politicians, need to read political philosophy before they spout out trite phrases about freedom. Freedom is a powerful concept especially in the United States, but it can be co-opted and has been in ways that restrict the freedom of others. And the same thing can be said about God and God's Messiah. That powerful concept, too, has been co-opted. During the 1950s, white, primarily Southern Baptist churches all across the South preached that it was God's will for Jim Crow to be in place. God had, according to these preachers, ordained an order in society, and that order kept black black Americans as second-class citizens. Any attack on Jim Crow was an attack on God's plan and God's message in Jesus. Meanwhile, in black churches across the South, preachers preached about how God wanted to free black Americans from oppression and discrimination. It was God's will for Jim Crow to be overturned. So who was right? Who was being true to the message, the idea, the concept of God's anointed? It's easy to cherry-pick Bible verses to support nearly anything you want. The Bible can and has been used to support slavery, imperialism, genocide, violence, suppression of women's rights, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia, just to name a few. (laughs) One of my favorite examples of proof proof texting is using Leviticus 11 to say that God forbids playing football. (laughs) Quote, the pig is unclean for you. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and of their carcasses you shall not touch. In other words, you cannot touch a pigskin. (laughs) Take that, Tom Brady. (laughs) Ah, Tom Brady, why did you disappoint me last night? (laughs) 
But when we don't cherry-pick texts, when we look at them in their context, and the context of the canon more broadly, clear lines of interpretation do emerge. In our text for today, the concept of the Messiah is a threat, not only to Herod, but also to the whole power structure in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem leadership is among those, is included among those who fear the Messiah. Why? Because the concept of the Messiah, of the Christ, is something that is a threat to those in power and those who oppress. If Herod and the other leaders in Jerusalem were abiding by God's laws, and specifically God's concern for the poor and marginalized, they would have no reason to be afraid of the Messiah. They would welcome the Messiah. But the fact that Herod was in cahoots with the Roman Empire, he was a client king of the Roman Emperor, His reign was well known for its oppression and high levels of taxation, which fell disproportionately on the poor. This concept of of the Messiah, of God's anointed, who will bring liberation from oppression, is something that resonates with Christians. God frees. God heals those who suffer. God, the people who take the Bible seriously intuitively know that God is on the side of the impressed. I remember a number of years ago in my final year of divinity school having a conversation about theology with my friend Joe Fallon. Joe was the freshman lightweight rowing coach at Yale, and I was working with him as a coach for the Yale lightweight crew team. Joe had been raised a Catholic and had gone to Catholic school and had graduated from Yale College. We were talking about theology, and one day I began explaining to him about liberation theology, which I was studying at the time. Joe listened carefully and then responded without hesitation, that is a God that I could get behind. That sounds like Jesus to me. Joe was a privileged person in nearly every sense of the word. He was American, white, male, straight, an Ivy League graduate, able-bodied, handsome, and came from an upper-middle-class family. And yet, in spite of his privilege, he knew that Jesus stood on the side of the underprivileged. You don't need a theological education or a degree in biblical studies to understand what the concept of the Messiah means and why it could be a threat to those in power when taken to its logical conclusion. And so here is the challenge. Here is what I wrestle with myself. Like my friend Joe, I'm someone who has a lot of privilege and power. Because of that, I confess that I I all too often shape my view of Christianity around maintaining my own power. This really hit home for me last week. Last week, a friend of mine, Taylor, came over to my house to use my printer for something he needed. Before Taylor printed out his document, he and I found ourselves in a political conversation. Shocking for me, I know. (laughs) Taylor asked me who I supported for the Democratic nomination for president. And I responded that I wasn't sure, but probably Joe Biden. I said, probably Joe Biden, because I'm not particularly a big fan of the current administration, and I think Biden would have the best chance of winning. Now, Taylor is significantly more progressive than I am, and he supports Bernie Sanders. Taylor is a millennial. He is, someone, he is someone who has had to deal firsthand with a lack of health care and the unaffordability of higher education. That has been his life. I have been privileged in my life with more than he has and with, far, and with a far easier path than he has. The major issues in our country that affect so many millennials affect Taylor directly. After he left, I couldn't help but fall into thinking. How much of my support for more moderate candidates who support the status quo has to do with my own benefiting from that same status quo. My brother is a managing director at an investment banking firm. If Bernie Sanders were to be elected president, his policies would directly affect my own brother in a negative way. 
The question I kept mulling over in my head was, am I actually living out my loyalty to Jesus as the Messiah? And how? And what could I be doing more? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders is the Jesus candidate. (laughs) There are all sorts of factors that are involved. A good argument could be made that Donald Trump and his economic policies have done more to lift the wages of low-income Americans than any policies of the progressive left. This, This isn't about who you support for president. It's about your priorities. Are your priorities in line with the concept of the Messiah? The same concept that so scared Herod the Great. Are your priorities about liberation from oppression and from illness and from sin and from the structures of sin? If astrologers from the East were to show up here and announce that the Messiah had been born, would you, would you be afraid of what you might lose, like those in Jerusalem? Or would you celebrate the news as the shepherds did? This is a new year. And as such, it is an ideal time for us all to consider our goals for the year. What do we want to do with 2020? What do we want to make of ourselves with the limited and precious time that we have here on earth? In my own ruminations, I've decided I need, to, I need to recommit myself to the concept of the Messiah as it was lived out in Jesus, that same concept that so scared Herod. That takes effort, conscious effort on my part, because I have so much privilege. It's easy to co-opt the concept of the Messiah and make it into something that supports everything that I already do. My own spiritual life and my spiritual growth depends on my commitment, however, to that ideal. It's the same ideal, the ideal of the Messiah, that motivated the Apostle Paul to give up all he had to spread the message of Jesus. It motivated William Lloyd Garrison and Jane Addams, Dorothy Day and Martin Luther King. And today it motivates William Barber, who leads the Poor People's Campaign, and countless others in movements across the nation. I would argue that the concept of the Messiah, the concept as we find it in Jesus, is the greatest hope for our nation to live into the ideals that gave it its birth. But it requires of us to commit to that ideal, to make a change, to make 2020 a true year of spiritual growth and development. Just the other day, I was reading through the newsletter from my high school, Roxbury Latin, and I ran across something that made me think about what it means to make the Messiah your ideal. Near the beginning of the newsletter was a story about an effort led by one of my former teachers, Mike Poyman. Mike is a devout Catholic, and he organizes groups of seniors throughout the year to work with one of the local funeral homes in West Roxbury, where the school is located. Every year, there are countless individuals who die, and no one claims their bodies. They die without friends or family members who care enough to give them a decent burial. Undoubtedly, many, if not most, of these people did plenty in their lives that left them alone and abandoned. These people are not without sin but they are human and children of God nonetheless. The city of Boston knows that this funeral home in West Roxbury is one of the few that will take unclaimed bodies. The funeral director does his work and then calls Mike Poyman and the boys of Roxbury Latin to do their part. They travel with the body to Fairview Cemetery, which has one of the few spots which the city owns for such burials. Dressed in coat and tie, the high school seniors act as pallbearers and commit the bodies to the earth. The story in the newsletter had a photo from one such of these burials, that of Dennis Kelly, who died alone at age 66. There, the six seniors stood as one of them read the following words. We pray, Lord, that when it is our time to depart this world, we will be surrounded by those who love us. Sadly, Mr. Kelly was not so blessed. 
He died alone with no family to comfort him. But today we are his family. Today we are his sons. We are honored to stand together before him now to commemorate his life and to remember him in death as we commend his soul to eternal rest. Frater in perpetuum ave atque vale. Requiescat in pace. Amen. I don't know how in the year to come you will commit yourself to the high ideal of Jesus the Messiah. I don't know what you will do to live out God's mission to bring good news to the poor and oppressed. But I pray that you will take that calling seriously. It's a calling that scares the Herods of the world, but it can bring us redemption.